Hey, everybody. Welcome to Volts for March 28th, 2022. Volts podcast, Rob Harmon on how to scale up energy efficiency. I'm your host, David Roberts. Like everyone else, I've been thinking a lot about the war in Ukraine. I don't have much expertise in foreign affairs, so unlike every other pundit on the planet, I've mostly chosen to keep my hot takes to myself. One aspect of the conflict, however, overlaps with my interests. Everyone seems to agree that the top priority going forward is to wean the West off of Russian oil and gas. As usual, such discussions are being dominated by supply-side considerations, how to find the oil and gas elsewhere. But as all good energy nerds know, the fastest and cheapest way to use less oil and gas is to use less oil and gas, to reduce demand, not frack more. So I thought it would be nice to do a series of podcasts focused on clever, innovative ways to reduce oil and gas demand. We begin today with energy efficiency, specifically with one of its biggest challenges, commercial buildings, which are responsible for about 18% of U.S. primary energy use, more energy than all of Canada consumes, and 16% of U.S. carbon emissions. Today, according to the EPA, they waste around 30% of that energy, almost a third, and they are coming under increasing pressure from policymakers to emit less. Efficiency in commercial buildings is an enormous opportunity, not only to reduce emissions, but to keep money in local communities and to create local jobs. Despite that, it has never quite taken off like proponents hoped. The tough nut to crack is developing a business model that can make deep efficiency retrofits of existing commercial buildings work without ever escalating public subsidies. That brings us to today's guest, Rob Harmon, a longtime energy expert and entrepreneur who lives here in my home city of Seattle. Over the last eight years, he has been developing, evangelizing, and road testing a model that he thinks can finally scale up efficiency in commercial buildings. I will warn listeners up front that the model, called MEETS for Metered Energy Efficiency Transaction Structure, is somewhat complex. There are some unfamiliar terms involved, but once it clicks into place, I think you will see that it is incredibly clever and the opportunities for growth are boundless. I'm eager to talk to Harmon about how it works, where it is currently working, and the opportunities he sees ahead. So without further ado, Rob Harmon, welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you, David. It's really great to be here. I'm a Long-time listener and subscriber. I think I subscribed the day I got your email about your new venture. Uh, and it's great to be a participant. Uh, so thank you very much. Thanks for saying so. All right. Well, before we get into the model, let's talk about commercial buildings and why they're such a tough nut to crack. They're big energy users. I think everybody intuitively understands that. And I know they're incredibly wasteful. So it just seems like an enormous opportunity to be mined here, but we haven't been able to dig very deep into it. So just explain, like, what is it about the kind of um, ownership structure and, and regulatory structure around commercial buildings that has made them so difficult to get at? Well, let me do a little preamble um, so I don't offend my colleagues <laughs> right off the bat. 
So I do want to say at the beginning that what I'm going to talk with you about today, I'm speaking in very broad strokes about the majority of large commercial buildings in the United States. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of exceptions to the rule of the sort of basic impression I'm going to give you. And we have a very large percentage. uh, Well, we have a very large percentage of buildings that fit the pattern. And that's really what I want to talk about. Right. So I'm not suggesting that this is true of every building, et cetera, et cetera. Not all buildings. That's what you're saying. Exactly. (laughs) And I also want to clarify that when I'm talking about efficiency, I'm talking about what it sounds like you're talking about, which is that rather than looking at sort of cream skimming, you know, taking the the first 10 or 15% off the top, I think we agree that the climate and energy issues are pretty serious these days. So I don't think we can afford to sort of lightly touch buildings and call it good. Right. We need to decarbonize buildings and we need to turn them into grid assets, right? These are big things. And to me, that's the only way we can reach our climate and grid stability goals. So I'm talking about relatively large commercial buildings, and I'm talking about going deep into those buildings, not just skimming the cream off of them. So with the long preamble there, I just wanted (laughs) to make sure people got that I was not suggesting we're solving every problem for every creature on God's green earth. (laughs) Right. So with that said, most buildings, particularly large buildings, are not occupied by their owners. They're occupied by tenants. So the first problem with getting efficiency done in those buildings is that the tenants pay the energy bills, but they don't own the building. So they won't spend money to make the building more efficient because they don't want to put money into the building they don't own. Right. Right. So tenants have no reason to invest. So that's one category of stakeholder. The second problem is a little bit more complicated, and it has to do with why the building owners won't invest. You'd think, well, they they own the building, they should put money into it, et cetera. And the efficiency industry's existing approaches to buildings ask building owners to do just that, to borrow money to pay for efficiency upgrades. But those upgrades lower the energy bills for the tenants. So the building owner has no financial reason to upgrade the building either, Right. right? The vast majority of those benefits flow to somebody else. That's called a split incentive. And inside the efficiency community, it's a really well-known barrier to moving projects forward. Like nobody's got an interest in doing this. So the tenants won't invest and the building owners won't invest. So we have a lot of clever people in the industry. And so some folks have tried to crack that problem by having energy service companies, usually called ESCOs, pay for the upgrades to the buildings and charge the building owners over time. It's sort of a split savings thing, right? We'll take a bunch of the savings, right? So you, you pay us out of your savings. And that sometimes works, but it has a lot of its own problems. So, for example, remember that the ESCO in that situation is essentially charging the building owner over time. Mm -hmm. And if the building owner can't send those charges to the tenants, which is probably not in their leases, right? Right. Then we're back to the problem we had before where there's no cash flow for the building owner to use to repay the ESCO, the the people who developed the, the project. So the building owner has no way to pay them back. So they say no again. Oops, we had somebody else's money. We still can't get it done. And another issue for this, and this gets super geeky, so I'll just lightly touch on it, is that the building owners don't want additional liabilities on their books, right? So this is sort of an accounting problem. Mm-hmm. In many cases, their books are, you know, their, their assets and liabilities or liabilities in particular are heavily leveraged, and they don't have room on their books for more liabilities. So even if somebody else pays the upfront costs, we still can't fix the building because the owner says, no, I can't have any more liabilities on my books. So all that is to say that the existing approaches to efficiency basically don't work for building owners who have tenants, which represent a huge portion of the buildings, particularly the big ones. So the tenants won't invest and the building owners won't invest and building owners won't let other people invest. But even if you can solve that problem, 
and you can find a way around all that. Now you have to find an investor who wants to invest. And nearly all the structures for efficiency are based on the idea that an investor is supposed to lend money to the building owner to make efficiency upgrades or the third party to make upgrades, right? But building owners for commercial buildings sell their buildings every five to seven years. That's part of the industry. We just flip the buildings all the time, right? Mm. And investors want all their money back during that window. So the types of investments in the buildings that we need to make to really get deep in the buildings take longer to pay for themselves than five to seven years. Right. The five to seven years is cream skimming stuff. Yes, exactly. Right. Right. So the investors want to invest only short term and we need long term investments. So that's broken. That doesn't work either. And on top of that, as if that's not bad enough, right? Most of the building owners aren't seen as creditworthy counterparties for long term efficiency investments. So they, their balance sheets just don't support it. So investors don't want to invest in them because they're not creditworthy counterparties, right? I just talked to a developer in New York, and this is a huge problem in Manhattan, right? Where the investors are saying, I'm not lending that guy money for 20 years or however long it's going to take to get this to pay. And it's kind of funny. So I'm going to give you an analogy here that sounds a little bit ridiculous, but I think it's a useful way to think about this. Imagine we've, you know, we built a boatload of wind farms in the last however many years, right? Mm -hmm. And imagine if we tried to do that by going to a landowner building owner, landowner, drawing the analogy there, right. right? And saying to them that you should pay for the turbines to put up on your land, or we'll pay for them and you pay them, pay us back over time. No, we wouldn't build any, I mean, it's comical, right? We would never build anything. We certainly wouldn't get wind to scale if that was the model, relying on the property owner as the core of the thing. But that's what we built our entire commercial efficiency architecture around that idea, that making the property owner the financial centerpiece of what is essentially a problem with the energy system. We keep thinking it's a real estate problem, but the real estate's working fine for its real estate purpose. What we have is an energy problem, and we keep thinking we can solve that as a real estate problem, and it hasn't worked, and in my view, it can't work. What about the role of utilities in all this? Because utilities, you know, are up up in the <laughs> are up in the mix. Yep, no doubt. They also Notably, uh, legendarily, have no freestanding incentive to invest in efficiency. Tell us a little bit about that, about why they don't come to the rescue. Well, for the same reason that you would, if you went to a farmer's market and you told a farmer, uh, an apple farmer, that you wanted him to sell fewer apples, he might not like that idea. <laughs> right? I mean, what we're saying to the utilities is sell fewer units. And they have all these fixed costs. And when they sell fewer units, they have to collect for all those fixed costs by selling fewer units, which means they have to raise the price of the units. Right. And that's what they call the death spiral. Higher units means more people try to reduce use, and then they've got to raise rates more, right? It's very complicated, and you know it's certainly not that simple. And there are plenty of reasons why it makes sense for utilities to do efficiency. So I don't want to pretend that it's cut and dried. This is a very complicated issue. And if we started the podcast, like if all if after you launch this thing and people start listening, a thousand people start listening, if we start talking too much about the utility complexities, <laughs> we're going to have like five listeners at the end. But but I, <laughs> I mean, I'm personally obsessed with utilities, so my apologies to listeners, but you're going to have to listen to a little bit more about this because I think this is just worth hitting on, right? The utilities want to spend more money and invest more in infrastructure and sell more energy. Right. And energy efficiency is selling less energy. Right. And it's not like there are complications around the margins, but that basic misaligned incentive 
is everywhere. Utilities don't want to sell less of their primary product, right? right. And we socially and environmentally want them to. So that's, a, I mean, that split, that basic split incentive is everywhere in the yes. energy world. It's a problem everywhere. Right. And what I'll get, what we'll get into later as I start talking about the model is how we address that very problem, right? The sort of lost unit problem that is endemic in the, in the system. Um, and, you know, part of the solution here, uh, and we don't have time to get into that, this is, you know, do we move to performance-based rate making? Because remember, when you talk about a utility, you got to remember there's the staff of the utility, and then there's the rate payers of the utility. Mm-hmm. And then if there's an investor-owned utility, there are the shareholders of the utility. So you got three different groups there, all of whom have needs, <laughs> right. right? So you were talking about the 17 parts that the problems all break down into in the intro, <laughs> Right. That's just three of them, and each one of those has several parts associated with it. Right. So I agree with you entirely that we have a huge challenge in the way we regulate utilities. Yeah. And MEETS, which we'll talk about in a bit, doesn't solve all those problems, but it does help. So we have the basic problem with commercial buildings here, as we've reviewed, is that literally none of the parties involved anywhere along the line have an incentive to create this efficiency. Even though efficiency has value, there's no one here with the sort of incentive who gets enough of the value to induce them to do anything about it. So why have traditional efficiency programs and measures been a failure on this? I mean, it seems like most of traditional efficiency measures are just tax rebates if you buy particular kinds of more efficient machines, just kind of throwing money at it which doesn't really do anything to solve the larger incentive problem. But so why have traditional efforts failed here? Great question. And getting back to my preamble, they haven't failed everywhere. There are for, you know, homeowners, you know, I just, I just got an incentive to put a heat pump hot water heater in my house, right? So there are ways, you know, it's not a failure everywhere, but in large commercial buildings, it's really a problem. So um, I'm going to divulge how old I am now. <laughs> in an effort to explain how we got here. Um, Cause I have some history with this. I got my first job in efficiency in 1982, which was my first year in college. Reagan. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so I won't bore you with the college story. Um, but j- this is just suffice it to say, I've been in this for a very long time and I spent many years working in the industry that I am now trying to shift. Mm-hmm. So I've lived and breathed the challenges of the industry. And I think what's really important to remember is what was happening in the country when the efficiency programs were developed. So at that time, energy use was growing very rapidly. And there was a big push across the country to build lots and lots and lots of power plants. And some very smart people, um, many of whom are still kicking around, looked at that and realized that at least in some cases, it was much less expensive to save energy than it was to acquire it. So our efficiency programs were born out of that essential contribution, right? That it was much cheaper to just save energy than it was to go build another plant. And given that context, in many, many places, those programs were very successful. We built far fewer power plants than we would have without that essential contribution. Another second bit of context that's really important to remember is that we couldn't meter efficiency the way we could meter energy from a coal plant. But again, a lot of very smart people figured out how to measure it well enough 
to realize that, you know, to use your example, if you paid somebody five bucks to buy an efficient light bulb, it would at least on average more than pay for itself. Right. Compared to the cost of going out and building a new resource, right? Based on the sort of average estimated energy consumption of a regular light bulb, right. an average right. regular, right. And, you know, some of those, you know, fell out of the person's bag in the parking lot of the Home Depot and broke and never saved anything. And some of them were on 24-7 and saved more than they expected. And they took enough haircuts, they shaved enough off the top to make people comfortable with the notion that it was a no-brainer. Lots of hard fights to get that to happen, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to pretend it was easy, but those are the tools we had. We knew it was cheaper and we knew that we could measure it well enough to provide some incentives. Kind of a blunt, a blunt instrument, if you will. Right. That's right. So we built the whole industry around those two notions. We could pay incentives uh, to people up front to do efficiency. It was cheaper than building new power plants in many cases. And it was good enough to use averages, which are essentially deemed savings. So that we weren't metering anything. We were deeming the savings, right? And I think it's important to remember here before I launch into where I think we need to head is that we really had a limited set of tools. And perhaps more importantly, we, we were focused on saving money by investing in efficiency when it was cheaper to build a power plant, right? So we got a lot done with that, but it was just, as you say, you know, it's a very limited set of tools. So... What's important is to recognize what's changed in the last five or 10 years that makes it possible for us to have these programs evolve. Mm -hmm. One of them is our ability to meter efficiency it has grown immensely. In many cases, we can now know with an accuracy that is plenty good enough to do business with how much efficiency is being created by the things we do to fix buildings. Right. Not, not just estimating in advance what they will do, but measuring what they are doing. Are doing in real time. In real time. That's right. So, you know, computers and building science has come a very long way since my first efficiency job in 1982. Now, a lot of the programs haven't changed that much, but we now have much, much better tools than we had then. This is worth emphasizing, too. I just want to pause on this for a second. Yeah. Is, is, you know, the lifetime of efficiency up till relatively recently was all based on these sort of guesses, these averages, you know, sort of like an average light bulb will use this. The average LED will use this. You know, the one minus the other is the average savings of an LED bulb. But as to the actual savings of a particular LED bulb, we were in the dark. We were right. using averages. And now... We have the sort of uh, the AI and the close uh, monitoring and measuring that allow us to actually quantify the savings produced in real time ongoing. So just like a building owner, you know, uses seven units of energy, we he can he can then, you know, use five units of energy and two units of energy efficiency. That's right. We now have a, a measurable unit that we can sort of... That's right. And and some of that technology can actually meter efficiency on a whole building level to revenue grade accuracy. So this is accurate enough to transact in the utility system. And so now what we have, and this I think is, is a super important thing, is because when you do these efficiency measures and you save energy, you are creating value. And now we have the metered value, which means we have a pool of a measurable value. And so now then we return to sort of where we started with all these misaligned incentives. Now we have this pool of value and we've got to figure out how do we divide up this pool of value <laughs> such that it will induce people to actually 
take the actions necessary to create it, right? Like we have the pie now. Right. Now we got to figure out how to how to divide it up. That's exactly right. And not only that, but the way I would say that is that we can transact on efficiency in the same way we transact on every other kind of energy. Right. Right. It's a metered resource. Someone produces a unit of it and sells it to someone else. You know, what a concept, right? Um, <laughs> right. And that can scale, right? And that's what, ha- that's what caused wind and solar to scale. We had a thing we could create and sell to somebody. And that's why, why I got back into efficiency, because it seemed like, oh, well, that's an actual business. <laughs> right. That's like every other thing that we buy and sell, right? When you go to the farmer's market, nobody deems the number of apples you get, right? <laughs> So let's let's pivot a bit here and l- let's recognize that the other big change besides the fact that we can meter now is that the problems we're trying to solve for are not the same as they were even five or 10 years ago. It's no longer our goal to only build four coal plants instead of eight. <laughs> right. right. Our new goals, in my view, at least, are we've got to electrify everything. And in the process, we have to maintain a stable grid. Mm hmm. And those sometimes overlap with, but are not the same thing as reducing energy use. And that's right. Sort of old school. So there's there's new considerations on the table here, new goals. Yeah, I just saw a headline out of Boston in some newsletter that showed up on my desk that apparently there's some article out of um, Massachusetts right now saying that Massachusetts should use more electricity, not less. (laughs) Right. Yeah. This is a this is a, a a a thing a lot of people have tried to emphasize about electrification is you know for a given building if you switch from natural gas to a heat pump you're using more electricity. You're not using less. Yep. <laughs> and yet, you know, the system, the, the benefits uh, accrue to the system. So so we're not only trying to divide up the kind of e- efficiency pie, we're also trying to align that program with other goals as well. Right. The tasks that are in front of us compared to what they were in 1982 or even in 1992 or even in 2002, the tasks are hugely different. And our existing approaches to efficiency just weren't designed with those tasks in mind. It doesn't make them bad, right? It doesn't mean they're a failure. It just means we need some new tools in the toolbox. And also it's worth, you know, you say we're not trying to do four coal plants instead of eight. We're trying to do zero coal plants, which means by definition, using a fossil fuel more efficiently is just not going to cut it. Like that's not, that is not going to qualify in our new world. And in fact, it's not even that we're trying ultimately to not build any new coal plants. We're trying to remove coal plants from the system. Right, right. No one was talking about that when these efficiency programs were built. Right. Okay. So with all that in place now, why, why commercial buildings are so hard to get at? Why conventional programs have failed to get really deep? into them. And now what's changed? So we have this sort of measurable value, this measurable quantity of items mm-hmm. <laughs> that, we're, that we're selling. So we have at least the capacity now to have a real market. With all that in place now, now let's talk about meats. So the problem meats is solving is this incentive problem. Like how, how do you create a business model where People want to do it, where <laughs> tenants want to do it, owners want to do it, investors want to do it, utilities want to do it. None of them want to do it now. So sort of walk us through meat and explain how the sort of participants are incentivized to go after this. Yeah, well, let me talk about the way we thought about it when we created it. 
So we realized that we could meter efficiency mm-hmm. and we could look at it like a resource. And we realized that it opened an opportunity to transact like you and I were just talking about, right? In ways that we hadn't been able to track transact, right? Somebody creates this resource and sells it to somebody else, right? That's cool. Mm-hmm. And once you have this resource, I'm going to herald back to what you said, you can put all the benefits together on the metaphorical table and start seeing how all the parties can transact and benefit. We're gathering up all these benefits because we've metered them. There's a unit associated with a whole pile of benefits for efficiency, right? So if we've got this big bag on the table of benefits that are metered, what do the tenants want? What do the building owners want? What about the investors and the utilities and the regulators, right? right? How do we use this thing, right? This apple that we have that we can buy and sell, to use my earlier analogy, right? <laughs> bag of apples, if we're going to bring all our analogies together here. There you a, go. Bag, a bag of apples on the table. Well, and in fact, it's sort of a mixed salad, right? <laughs> right? So anyway, efficiency metering allows us to step back and say, what are we trying to accomplish here? How do we get everyone rowing in the same direction? You know, what's in each party's self-interest, That's what we started getting our head around. That's what made us excited about this. So there are lots of benefits that created this salad we just talked about. Um, But you can only get those to parties that care about them if we have a transaction structure that allows for that. And that's where Meets comes in, right? We got our head together and we were like, how can we put this together so we can actually deliver the benefits to the parties that want them? So let me walk you through the model. And I'll start with the acronym, right? So you mentioned at the top, it MEET stands for the Metered Energy Efficiency Transaction Structure. So let me break that apart a bit. So first of all, we're obviously talking about metered efficiency. We're not deeming anything here. This is all based on a meter reading. And MEETs wouldn't be possible without all that computers and building science stuff we talked about. So we're dealing with a resource. And in fact, we are now starting to call it efficiency energy to distinguish it from other approaches. Right there's solar energy, there's wind energy, and now there's efficiency energy. That's the way we're thinking about it. Wait, aren't they aren't they megawatts? Aren't those megawatts? No. Is there a reason you're not using megawatts? Well, absolutely, because the problem with megawatts is that it falls into the trap of not delivering anything. Right, and that's the problem. Is that the whole industry is so, is associated around this idea that uh, I'll get to this in a minute of sort of reducing the energy use. And what we're saying is this is not about reducing energy use. It's about a new form of energy that can compete in the system. Right. So as soon as you start talking about nega anything, (laughs) the whole thing starts falling apart. Right. And by the way, I don't know if you know the story, but it's a great story that somebody, what I understand it is somebody wrote Amory Lovins, first guy I read on this, on all this stuff. Great guy. They wrote him some letter or email or something. It was probably, it was way before email, wrote him some letter and they had a typo. And they meant to type megawatt Uh, and they typed megawatt and he thought it was so awesome (laughs) that he started using it. Right. So great for Amory. Right. Very creative (laughs) spirit there. Um, Anyway. okay, efficiency energy, another form of sellable energy. Exactly. So we've got that. And then the really important thing to keep clear in one's mind is that meets is a transaction structure. Right. That's the TS on meets. Mm -hmm. It's not a new incentive. It's not a financing mechanism. It's essentially a set of contractual relationships between the parties. Yes, ideally, but let's just note here, ideally, once it's up and running, it should require no public subsidy. I think that's that's actually quite notable because everything, you know, all efficiency policy, as long as I've heard the discussed is about 
dumping public money on people to, to induce them to do things. That's right. The idea here is let the value be divided among the participants and that you don't require public subsidy. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I'll walk you through that at the, at the end when we talk about our grand vision, right? We're going to mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit, right? I know you always want to talk about that. I love that. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about the stakeholders in this structure and about what they do in the structure and what they get. Mm-hmm. All right. Everybody's self-interest is where I start all this. So let's start with the building and let's just imagine a hundred thousand square foot commercial office building, right? 10 story office building, 20 story office building, whatever you want. And while the building of course, isn't a person, it plays the key role in the structure because what the building needs is to be more efficient. That's what we want the building to be, right? So the role that the building plays in the transaction is the host where the efficiency energy is harvested. So you can think about that like a piece of land where we're going to put a solar farm, right? So it's just the host site. That's what it is. And then to fix that building, we need a company that's good at that. And you can call them an ESCO or an efficiency developer. In the meat structure, we call them an energy tenant for a variety of very cool reasons that we don't have time to talk about, right? (laughs) But we call them an energy tenant. So when I say that, you can think of an ESCO or the company that fixes the building. But I'm going to use the term energy tenant because that's what I do. I think it's worth explaining at least a little bit why it's called a tenant because this, the, the, I think the relationship between this ESCO and the building owner is the key thing, the That's key right. thing where this all where this all starts. And the energy tenant, the ESCO, pays the building owner rent as though they were a tenant. That's right. That to me is like the, sort of the key thing. So the building owner right there, right up front, instead of asking the building owner, take on a liability, you're asking the building owner, take on a new income stream, take on a new tenant. That's right. And so if you need to fix the building long-term, then the relationship needs to be a long-term relationship. So the energy tenant signs a long-term agreement with the building owner. In Seattle, it's up to 20 years. Right. And what the energy tenant's going to do is harvest the efficiency and maintain the measures. Think about the person that installs and maintains a wind farm. That's their job. They don't own the land. They're a tenant on the, on, on the property right? They're paying rent. And just to be clear here, just to clear up any any possible confusion, they're not living in the building. They're not literally a tenant. They're no. just a, sort of a metaphorical tenant. They're, well, paying, they are. Yeah. they're paying rent to operate in the building. That's right. They might need a broom closet. <laughs> right, right, right. right. And, but the point is that the contracts they sign with the building owner might be a standard building owner lease right out of BOMA that says, I'm, I am a tenant in your building this is what I have the right to do in the building. I'm not making coffee. I'm not running a law firm, right? I'm not doing any of those things that your other tenants do. And this is my job in the building and I have a right to do it. Right. And the tenant also, also worth noting, a tenant goes with the building. So if the building owner sells the building, that's right. the tenant goes along. So there's your long-term relationship. That that's right. This thing survives the change of building ownership, right? Because mm. when, in fact, when a building owner goes to flip the building, the new building owner looks at it and says, well, how much rent are you getting? Right. What's the income stream, right? So all of a sudden, to get to your point, the energy tenant is an asset on the building owner's books, not a liability. And that's one of the fundamental problems with the traditional ESCO model, is that no matter how you slice it and dice it, the ESCO has to get paid back by the building owner or by the cash flows. And that makes them in one way, shape, or form a liability on the books. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's a problem for a lot of building owners. So this breaks a lot of the existing programs. You need that energy tenancy model to get around the building owner balance sheet hassles. 
Right. So the energy tenant becomes an asset to the building owner. The building owner is otherwise undisturbed, right? Doesn't have to also doesn't have to figure out what to do in terms of energy efficiency, right? They have an expert now that does all that for them. From their point of view, the only change is a new income stream. That's right. Well, and a better building. Right. Right. So if, and, right, right, right. And if you're if you're a building owner, one of the things you love is somebody's putting a pile of capital into the building. You don't have to pay back. <laughs> right. Right. That's that's another good thing. That's called net asset value. So Meech changes this paradigm of the developer, the ESCO being a liability. And it does that by being modeled on this renewable energy transaction structure that has made, has scaled with solar and wind. Right. Landowner, developer. And this is where it gets interesting because that's not the only thing we stole from the renewable energy transaction, right? When a developer develops a solar farm, to whom do they sell the output? Not the landowner, they sell it to the utility, right? And that's the key to meets. So under meets, the buyer of the efficiency is not the building owner, it's the utility. Seattle City Light is buying efficiency energy from the developers, Right. So it's just like a developer could put a solar panel on the roof of a Walmart and sell the energy it produces to a utility. This is like putting a efficiency energy unit on a building That's and exactly selling the right. efficiency to utility. And remember, it's a metered resource. So it's really exactly the same. And every month we can see how much efficiency has been harvested. And we can see it more often than that if we want to, right? It's, it's fractal. You can look as often as you want. And the energy tenant sells those efficiency energy units to the utility, just like like the wind farm, right? And the utility buys them, here's the other piece, under a long-term contract known in the industry as a power purchase agreement or PPA. Also familiar from renewable energy. That's exactly right. So basically, there's nothing interesting about meats. We just stole everything from the (laughs) renewable energy industry, right? But it's important because those two things scaled in a way that, as you pointed out earlier, efficiency hasn't. So there's a good reason to steal the stuff that works. Right. So the energy tenant is, is the equivalent of the developer. It's That's a project right. developer. It's, it's an efficiency project developer. Right. And now remember that the problem for the investors in the original structure, the traditional structure, is they don't want the building owner as the counterparty. Mm-hmm. So here, now, there's a PPA, a power purchase agreement in place for efficiency energy. And the investor's counterparty is the utility. They do that all day long. That's how you scale. Investors, there's a whole huge swath of investors that know all about power purchase agreements with utilities. So now you have all this capital that's been waiting on the sidelines because the building owners don't have the balance sheets to support those investments and everything else is broken, right? (laughs) And now you have a long-term credit-worthy counterparty in the utility that you're investing behind. Right. And you've got your developer that's got long-term contracts in place. Right. Nobody who's going to be flitting out in five to seven years. That's right. Exactly. So the building owner wants a better building and rental income. That's what building owners like, right? They, I mean, think about what a building owner likes with or without meets, right? They want a better building, check. They want rental income, check. And they don't want any liabilities in the process. Yes, no, and no hassles. Right, and no and, hassles. One, one thing that's worth pointing out here, though, I think is important is that the tenants, the other tenants who are paying the energy bills of the building do not pay lower energy bills because of the efficiency. They are paying the same price, but instead of getting, you know, whatever, 10 units of energy, they're getting nine units of energy and one unit of efficiency energy. Their their bills stay roughly the same. Right. So 
That gets us directly at the last key element of meets. Remember that the utility is buying the efficiency energy from the energy tenant Mm -hmm. under the PPA, right? And what do utilities do for a living? They buy and sell energy. This is right in their wheelhouse. And that's what meets is about. So under meets, the utility purchases the efficiency and sells it on the retail energy bill to the building. So it's just another form of energy serving the needs of the building. But rather than being harvested from a coal mine and burned mm-hmm. at a coal plant and delivered <laughs> through the grid, the efficiency energy is harvested in the building right. and delivered through meets. So much like a rooftop solar panel locally generates your energy, this locally generates your efficiency energy. Right. And we talk a lot about, you know, how you know, we talk about megawatts, right? Well, let, let's look at what energy is on the grid, right? What you're paying for on your bill isn't some magical piece of energy. It's all the capital and O&M that went into getting it to your light bulb, right? Right. Okay. So in my perspe- from my perspective, I don't see any reason why if we can ask a tenant to pay for the light on their desk by paying for the ca- their share of the capital and O&M costs of a coal plant, why can't we also have them pay for the light on their desks in a way that covers the capital and O&M for the efficiency that happened or the daylighting that happened in their office, right? It's all capital and O&M. Like there's this myth that there's some magical energy thing, right? Well, <laughs> what is it? The, the law of conservation of energy? The energy was already there, right? It's really about transforming it from, in, in one case, coal into this thing that turns an electromechanical meter, but the, really, you want light on your desk, so why not transform the sunlight by putting a daylit window in? It's the same thing. We just think it's different. Right. So to, to just put this from the perspective of the other tenants, basically, the only change they would see if this were implemented is their energy bills would stay basically the same, but the building would get more comfortable around them. That's right. <laughs> Otherwise they will be undisturbed, right? Or if they I guess if they squint at their utility bill, they'll see, oh, I was paying for, you know, 10 units of energy and now I'm paying nine units of energy and one of efficiency. I assume that will be broken out on the bill oh, yeah. somewhere. But yep. otherwise, from an experiential point of view, nothing really changes for them except the building starts to get less drafty. Well, right. And one of the things that that we often miss Getting back to the idea of we're doing the traditional efficiency programs because it's less expensive and megawatts and all of that, right? The challenge with that is that, you know, and you got to be careful around things like low income housing and stuff where it's really important to lower bills. But I don't think the law firm at the top of the Columbia Tower in Seattle cares very much about its (laughs) energy bill, right? And every dollar that you deliver to tenants in the form of savings is a dollar you don't have to fix the building, which is what they want. We're getting back to like, what are the actual needs of of folks, right? If what you want to do is to deliver to tenants what they want, then deliver them a better building, Mm -hmm. right? And every time you try to deliver, you wring your hands to deliver them savings, you rob yourself of the ability to deliver them a better building. And honestly, if you're a law firm in Seattle, it's probably worth more to you to be able to say, I occupy a green building than it is to save a dollar or two on your, well, on your, on your energy. Well, that's right. And then there's the, and I don't want to take a lot of time on this, but there's the classic 330-300 rule. And this is a rule of thumb, right? That in commercial office buildings, the tenants spend about three bucks a square foot on energy, 30 bucks a square foot on rent, and 300 bucks a square foot on their people. 
Oh, interesting. So you've got 1% of the cost of your person. Mm. And we're wringing our hands trying to get a 10% <laughs> savings out of that, right? And in the, in the process, we're robbing ourselves of the ability to fix the building to make the building occupant happier. And it's just because we, we, we can't get out of our own way. We're so, in the industry, we're so used to, to trying to solve this energy problem when they have a comfort problem and they have a lighting problem, right? That's what they want to solve for. So the bill reductions are a really minor portion of the cost of doing business for most tenants. And that just pales in comparison to all the other stuff. So let's get back to the, the needs of the parties, right? Because we have the big bag of benefits on the table, right? <laughs> so the tenants get a better and healthier building, but they pay the same amount. The building owner wants happier tenants, right? Let's think about like, forget about energy efficiency. What do they want, right? They want happy tenants. They want rental income and they want a big boatload of cash infused into their building with no liabilities. Of course <laughs> right. they do. Well, that's what happens, right? So now we have a building owner who might actually like what we're proposing in the efficiency community, okay? And for the utilities, it gives them another resource they can buy and sell. Well, this, this, I want to, I want to hone in on this because yeah. so, so far I get it for the building owner, right? Yeah. New rental income, happier tenants, bunch of cash in their building, tenants, they get a more comfortable building, otherwise are undisturbed. The energy tenants that the ESCOs get uh, basically land on which to do their projects and <laughs> long-term contracts, right. uh, which brings in investments, which makes investors happy and brings in investment. You get all that. Now we sort of come to the utility. And this is sort of the one part that I took me a little bit longer to wrap my head around. Like yep. we discussed earlier, the utility wants to sell more energy. So how have we overcome that? What is the utility getting out of this here? Because they're selling exactly the same amount of energy they were selling before. They just switched units, right? So it used to be they only sold apples, <laughs> right? And now we're now they we we reduced their apples by thirty percent, but we gave them oranges to make up for it, right? So they're selling the same total quantity of energy. It's just that some portion of it now is efficiency energy. That's correct. That's correct. And they're selling it to the tenants of the building. That's right. That's right. And remember, we're not asking. Meets doesn't require the use of incentives, mm -hmm. right? So if you think about, you know, we usually pay those incentives up front. So the math gets a little bit weird. But if you ask utilities, well, for every kilowatt hour that this light bulb is going to deliver over its lifetime, what are you paying as an incentive? And it's usually about two to three cents per kilowatt hour. Those are the how much they're paying for current efficiency incentives? Yeah. So and they front load it all, right? They give you five bucks for your light bulb. But the math all comes down to how much they think this thing's going to deliver over its lifetime. They don't have to pay any of that. So if you're looking at it from the utilities perspective, we have somebody else financing the development of a resource on our system that generates a product we can sell, and we don't have to pay anybody to make that happen. We don't have to pay any incentives, right? We spend hundreds of millions of dollars on utility incentives, Right. right. That's not bad. There are a lot of places we really need those incentives. And what those incentives are supposed to represent is the value of that saved unit, right? Because the utility doesn't have to go out and buy or build that unit. At this point, they're getting that benefit for free. They're getting all this efficiency at depth, which I'll explain in a minute, but they're not paying out those incentive dollars. So they have them available. Like you want to talk about equity. They now have, instead of having to spend a bunch of money out of their efficiency budgets to get commercial efficiency, they can save that money to go after low income efficiency. Ah, so they can they can better use and better target 
their available efficiency uh, funding. Right. Or they can lower rates by not having to pay the incentives out. Right. Like that's a that's a regulatory choice. That's going to be those decisions are going to be made at the local level. Good. What I'm suggesting is that if we simply provide the parties the benefits and have them pay for those benefits, we don't need those subsidies, like we were saying earlier. And of course, remember that the other people who are in this transaction are the investors who have a creditworthy counterparty, getting back to the participants, right? And for society, we can get vastly more efficient without having to spend boatloads of cash from the rate base. Yes, we can get lower emissions and lower energy use and presumably uh, some electrification right. in, a, in a market rather than <laughs> dumping public money to make it happen, right? Like finally setting up a market. I mean, it's funny. I sort of said at the outset that this is complicated, but it really, if you just think of efficiency as energy, as a form of energy, this really is a bog standard energy development model. Right. Like like if we were just talking about a developer putting a big solar array on the top of a Walmart, it's exactly the same structure here. We just are so used to thinking of efficiency as some sort of weird other thing. But if we just think of it in terms of energy units, this is not an unfamiliar model. And the only thing I would add to your Walmart analogy is that the wire from the solar array goes to the utility and the utility delivers those solar units to the building. Right. So it's a closed loop. Uh, but the point of the solar array on the Walmart is not to lower the energy bills of Walmart. Right. Okay. So conceptually now we've got this model in our heads. It makes sense. It's basically analogous to a renewable energy development model. You've got a developer producing efficiency, selling it to the utility. The utility sells it to the tenants of the building. Building owner gets rent. Everybody is making money. Everybody is getting more comfortable buildings. Everybody's happy. Yep. So. How do we make this happen? Like uh, just a couple of things that jump out. You got to talk the tenants. I mean, maybe you do talk the tenants into accepting efficiency units as equivalent of energy and paying for them. I mean, maybe they never know it happens, but, and then you have to enable the utility to treat efficiency as tradable units of energy. And so I guess the first question is when we're talking about how to make this actually happen, (laughs) Do you need to go to utility regulators, you know, to public utility boards? Do they have to make some official change to enable this thing to happen? I think so. I think that some people will disagree and that as long as we all agree that efficiency is energy, which we've been saying is true for a long time, we just haven't been treating it that way. Some people will argue that you don't need to do that. I, I don't think that's politically likely. Utilities do not want to get into situations where they make decisions where they can't recover the costs of making those decisions. Right. And generally bold innovations with <laughs> yeah. are not are not you don't go to the utility for the for the bold and risky right. innovations. But what I will say is, you know, we did this with the Bullet Center, the the greenest commercial office building in the world at least at the time back in, I think it was 2015 or so. And the regulator for Seattle City Light, of course, is the city council. Mm, right. And there were there were four votes related to Bullet and the expansion of the program after the Bullet pilot was completed. All four of those votes were unanimous. So they got it. They got it. And they got it because of just exactly what you said earlier, David, which is that this is what the tenants get and this is what the building owners get and this is what the utility gets. Like everybody wins. <laughs> Where's the problem? 
right? <laughs> right. And and so you know, you, regulators aren't used to that, right? Usually, what happens is people show <laughs> yes. up and everybody's arguing, right? We had I don't know, we had a dozen or a dozen and a half people testify from labor, from the environmental community, from the energy community, from the low income community, from the real estate community, and from City Light, who were presenting to the city council. And everybody was saying all the things you'd expect them to say. This is great. You know, we went through the stakeholders, but it's also worth noting here that if you got this up and running, you're talking about a lot of jobs yep. making these efficiency uh, improvements, all of which are intrinsically local, right? Using yep. uh, local workforces. And um, they're, they're good labor jobs too. And it's preventing building owners and tenants from sending money out of the local community, right? Instead of buying energy from far away, they're buying basically energy generated in their own uh, buildings. So it, it, it right. keeps money and jobs more local than the current energy system. Well, does. that's right. And because the goal of this, because the cash flows are so powerful, and I'll get to the cash flows in a second when we talk about Seattle. Because you get so deep in the building, you can get at all the HVAC stuff, right? The heating, ventilation, and, and, and cooling. And that requires skilled labor, right? Part of the problem with a lot of the cream skimming activities and energy efficiency is that it doesn't require skilled labor. I think you probably get better quality with skilled labor, mm -hmm. right? But there's there's a lot of competition for those jobs, right? Where is if you're going to go in and, you know, rip out the ductwork or, you know, reclad the building or, you know, anything that's really getting you deep in the building, you, you need skilled labor. So these aren't just, you know, $12 an hour jobs. Right. So the model was pioneered here in Seattle on the Bullet Center, a pride, pride and joy of Seattle, the greenest whatever uh, in the world. And it was, you know, as you said, like all the testimony was positive. Like everybody got it. It worked. <laughs> the, the utility regulators got it. And it produced the Bullet Center, which is an amazingly, you know, uh, green and efficient building. So where are we on expansion? Yeah. Like who's, who else gets it and who might get it soon? When you and I talked a little bit getting ready for this, I decided to go back to look at when, you know, Bullet happened and that was all good. It took a long time to get people's heads around it and all that. That's fine. It's water under the bridge. And then we worked with Seattle City Light to develop the pilot and launch it for other buildings after the pilot was over. And that all happened and they got the paperwork together. And those were interesting times. And I just want to, I want to toss a couple of dates at you to give you the context of, <laughs> of how this started. Okay. Mm. Okay. So on the last day of 2019, China announced its first COVID-19 cases. On January 10th, what is that? 11 days later, China announced its first death. I'm remembering these days. I imagine you are too. <laughs> On January 16th of 2020, China stopped all outbound flights from Wuhan. I remember that day. It was a big deal. On that very same day, Seattle City Light launched its version of Meats. <laughs> oh. which is called, Which they call energy efficiency as a service. All right. Okay. On the day all the outbound flights from Wuhan were canceled. Right. Now, five days later the first person in the U.S. tested positive for COVID. And that was, as I'm sure you recall, at a hospital just north of Seattle up in Snohomish, right? A month later, we got the first U.S. death at a hospital 16 miles from Seattle City Lights offices. <laughs> and on that day, February 28th, the governor declared a state of emergency. 
And over the next few days, commercial office buildings in Seattle started to lock down. Yes, commercial buildings in particular uh, did not do well. <laughs> right. So my last two dates for you, March 23rd. So remember, we're like two months out from the launch of the program. On March 23rd, the governor ordered Washingtonians to stay home except for crucial activities. Mm-hmm. Nobody got to go anywhere, right? I remember those days. And the initial applications for energy efficiency as a service were, were due March 31st. <laughs> so we were essentially in lockdown or panic mode for about half of the entire open program. Was it a time-limited program or yes. is this a new – This was this, so this is still a pilot? They're calling it a pilot? Yep. So it was time-limited. We called them about this because there were a bunch of buildings who were trying to get their paperwork together. And they extended it by a month, but the shutdown had already begun and everything froze, uh-huh. right? So that's how the Seattle program launched. <laughs> okay. Um, but we're starting to see a tentative return to the office now. And even though Energy Efficiency is a Service, their MEETS program, was launched right into the teeth of a pandemic that just emptied commercial offices everywhere, there are six buildings that are still moving through the program <laughs> right now, which astonishes me. Two of those buildings are new multifamily construction. And they're built to passive house requirements. Mm. So they're designed to be 40% more efficient than Seattle's code, which is really strict to begin with. 40% better than code. Think about that for a minute. All electric. And the other four buildings are large commercial office retrofits, which is really what we kind of had in mind with Meats. It's awesome that the new buildings are taking advantage of it too. Three of those four large commercial office buildings are finalizing agreements with building owners and investors right now. And they expect those buildings are proposing 30 to 40% reductions in energy use. Wow. And the one project that's underway right now is a 500,000 square foot commercial office building. And they're investing $8 million in that building. And they expect a 30% improvement. And all of that is happening without any incentives. Right. So uh, it launched an inclement... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> circumstances to say, say the very to say the very least <laughs> but it's still showing signs of success uh signs signs of life even in the teeth of this right so my question is well a like where's it going to go next and where else could it go but b specifically i keep thinking about new york city you know sure. where they just where they're just in the midst of passing these very strict mandates on their big buildings telling them you have to reduce energy use. And, you know, just to go back to our earlier discussion, like if you just take this current system with all these misaligned incentives and just lay a mandate on top of it, all you're really doing in that case is mandating that like everybody engage in a bunch of transactions that irritate the shit out of them and cause them to lose a little bit of money, which seems politically not great. So, my question is, have you talked to anyone in New York City? Because it seems like this is exactly what New York City needs to get up and running, like stat. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. So you can do meets pretty much anywhere you have a decent supply of buildings, commercial or multifamily buildings that are, I don't know, 50,000 square feet or bigger, right? That's a lot of places. Yeah. And obviously the cities that are doing benchmarking or mandates are fabulous opportunities, right? Because When you mandate, the kind of mandates that are in place in New York aren't going to result in building owners losing a little bit of money. They're really serious mandates, right? They're taking it very, very seriously. And of course, what that means is that the building owners are gulping and they're taking it very seriously. And you're right. Mandates are great. They get everybody focused. 
right? On um, that something needs to change. But what meets does is it can turn a mandate from a yoke around the building owner's neck into an opportunity to improve both their net asset value, the value of their building, and their net operating income from all the rent. It turns this thing that is seen, you know, horrifyingly by a lot of building owners as this massive obligation they have that they have no way to pay for. They don't have the balance sheets and they have a split incentive, right? So they're going to be asked to invest millions of dollars they never get back. You, you could even argue that if something like Meats was in place, you wouldn't need the mandate. I don't know if you want to go that far, but like yeah. you don't have to mandate people to make money, right? And, right. and the, the Meats system sets building owners up where they can make money doing this. Well, that's right. And when, like I said before, I think the advantage of the mandate is it gets everybody focused, <laughs> right. right? And, you know, reasonable people are going to agree or disagree about the importance of mandates. But the reason we've had to put mandates in place is because the transaction structure hasn't resulted in building owners fixing anything. We say that all these things are cost effective, but they're only cost effective when you look down at them from Mars, right? <laughs> it is true that the value of the savings is more than the cost of the measures over time. In some cosmic scale, right? right. In some like total, total societal scale. Well, right. But if you're, but if you're the banker who's going to lend money to make the thing happen and the other person says, well, we're going to give all the money to the tenants. You don't mind, do you? <laughs> right? Like nobody's going to finance that. Right. right? And it, it just doesn't work. Right. Are you all up in New York City's biz now? Like where is there, is there a next step for meat beyond Seattle, a concrete next step or a next place that it might go? Yes. And the challenge I have, of course, is that I work with large institutions who are on their own timeline <laughs> and who want to make announcements about things when they're good and ready. Right. <laughs> so what I can tell you is I'm spending a lot of my time talking to people in New York right now. Um, and I'm working, in fact, across the country with energy offices and utilities and other stakeholders. And there is significant movement right now that I'm not going to talk about because I don't, because my contracts tell me I'm not supposed to. It's easy for me to evangelize about this stuff, right? You know, folks inside utilities and at state energy offices and the regulators, they have a job to do. They have boxes they need to check. And it's going to take them longer to do this than it is for me to do a podcast with you. They have a lot of problems, actual problems they have to fix. And they have a lot of understandings they need to come to with their people internally. So I want to respect their own process of getting this rolled out. And I keep encouraging them to hurry up because right? that's what I do. <laughs> but something like this, efficiency as a service, whatever you want to call it, meets, is definitely in front of the eyeballs of lots of utilities at this point. Lots of Yes. Them. And I'm, I'm avoiding the as a service piece because I don't, unless all energy is a service, then efficiency isn't a service either. <laughs> right. Energy as a service, I guess. Right. I mean, if it, I don't see why the energy from a coal plant is any less a service than the energy from efficiency. Right. And it has to do with the way they're regulated and lots of arcane rules in the regulations. So I get it. But I'm going to continue to pound the pavement around the notion that efficiency is energy and we should treat it as such. So if I'm an uh, average Joe citizen and I like this idea and I want to push it, how close are we to utility regulators and utilities being able to sort of pull something like this off the shelf and do it? Like, is it, is it extremely bespoke in every new area at, at this point or? It's a great question. Somewhat standardized. I think that we are getting to the place where 
we will have something photocopyable. The challenge is that because each utility has its own regulatory scheme, yeah. the photocopy, you know, you may have to pull out six pages and replace them with something else. <laughs> Right. right. Um, so this is, you know, this is one of the challenges of uh, the way we regulate utilities. And that's just the way it is. Right. That's just what the grownups have to deal with. 50 battles every time. Well, it's more than that, because uh, you have a lot of municipal utilities. You have a lot of public other public utilities that don't have. It's not like it's just one regulator for every state. When you're talking to other utilities about this, can you, is there enough uh, evidence on the ground at this point in Seattle that you can, instead of explaining and explaining, just point and say, look at what's happening? Uh, do we have a, a critical mass of actual action? Well, I don't know. Um, you know, this is the problem with the COVID launch, right? I would have expected by now to have a boatload more of these buildings that are humming along, but the commercial real estate industry shut down in Seattle during COVID. And, build, and building owners weren't going to make commitments. So we need a little more time. And what I'm trying to do is, because there are a bunch of utilities who are curious about this, I'm trying to bring them along on the educational process so they're ready to do pilots, you know, as we come out of the COVID thing. So I had, I had to switch strategies, right? I assumed that we were just going to launch and go gangbusters and then <laughs> COVID ate everything we had done, right? So Right. So, uh, all right, I've kept you a long time. I want to conclude with some big talk. <laughs> Yeah, that's the so, fun part. <laughs> so let's imagine, let's imagine if we may, that this model takes hold across the country. So then you have basically a situation where every commercial building owner can make money by uh, increasing the efficiency of their buildings and, and ESCOs stand to make money and everybody's making money hand over fist and you're getting efficiency produced uh, at, at scale. Obviously, the benefits of this on a single building level are clear enough, but what can you see happening if this scales up? I mean, traditionally, when we talk about renewable energy, for instance, when we talk about scale, we've seen the just sort of mind-boggling effects of scale in renewable energy on, on just driving costs down and down and opening up new technological avenues. And just, you know, it's, a, it's been an amazing uh, positive cycle. What could happen with deep efficiency as it scales? Great question. And I try to keep my eyes on the prize. Um, I have an 11-year-old son. And so I look at him every morning and I go, okay, what's he going to need here? What, what are we trying to do? Why am I doing this? And I'll go back to what I said earlier. The goals have changed. What we're looking for now is a stable grid and a stable atmosphere. That's the goal. And we got to fix buildings to do that. And in my world and in my experience, you don't get either one of those things by simply financing things. The grid and the atmosphere are stabilized not by what we finance by, but by how it performs, mm -hmm. right? So what we need to get there is performance, not just finance. Because, you know, buildings don't perform now, right? We shouldn't assume they're going to perform after we put a bunch of fancy stuff in them, right? They're, unless somebody's <laughs> right, being right. paid to make sure they perform, they won't. We don't build a fancy wind farm and then walk away and hope it performs, right? <laughs> right. So you want to pay for performance rather than paying for finance. I think that's a key piece of how we get to the grand vision that you're after here. And the other piece that we got to remember as we think about not only where we want to get and how and what could happen, but what are the actual fundamental pieces, right? So pay performance is a key piece to it. The other is that, as we were talking about earlier, you can't finance this important depth in these buildings with short-term contracts. Mm -hmm. So we need long-term pay for performance, like Seattle, 20 years. 
That's how long it took to finance the first wind farms. That's how long it'll take to finance deep retrofits. And I don't think we need a lot of subsidy, right? This gets back to what are the benefits and who's paying for them? So let's talk about those benefits and that'll give you a sense of how I think we can roll this out. Efficiency delivers those benefits to the building, just like the grid does, right? Same energy benefits, maybe even better ones because you like daylight better than the light on your desk, right? So I think we should let the building and owner and the tenants pay the same price for it. You pay the same price for energy efficient, for efficiency energy as you do for grid energy, right? There's a big part of the cash flow you need right there. On top of that, both efficiency and demand response, which we haven't talked about, but it's a cool topic, those things deliver benefits to the grid, right? The efficiency overall delivers some grid benefits. It kind of squashes the duck in the duck curve, right? Mm -hmm. But you can also incorporate demand response stuff. You can incorporate batteries. You can do all that other stuff behind the grid. And that provides grid benefits that are above and, above and beyond the building, the be benefits to the building. Can I pause and ask about this? Because I actually meant to ask about this earlier, but we might as well touch on it now. So if I'm the ESCO or the energy tenant and I'm doing the efficiency stuff, the, just straight up efficiency makes a lot of sense to me. But like I would have to pay extra to put in a bunch of batteries that would enable the building to serve as a kind of grid buffer right yep. as a sort of like storage how am i getting paid for that like is the utility because you can't really measure units of grid resilience <laughs> like you can units of efficiency you know what i mean so well i think you in a lot of ways you can right you know when you turn the elevator off because the grid is, or when you don't turn where you take your 10 minutes to turn your air conditioning system on and the guy next door waits and does the next 10 minutes right? You can actually measure all of that. So a lot of the demand response stuff, you can actually meter quite effectively. So so then the utility just pays the escrow pay for, for that. that, just like anything else. Well, and, and then what about also on a, on a similar thing, what about electrification? Because, you know, we touched on this earlier, like if you're switching out natural gas furnaces for, for heat pumps, you're actually substantially increasing the electricity consumption of the building. So then how does how does an ESCO get paid for that? Because we want them to do that, <laughs> presumably. How do they get paid paid for that? Well, first of all, remember that there's a big cash flow that can be associated with the removal of the natural gas. True. Right? So there's a big chunk there, right? So you get all that money, and you're right that there is an increase in the electric bill, all other things being equal. But there's also a very large carbon benefit associated with that. And so to me... This gets to the societal benefit and how we pay for that. Right. Right. So in Washington, we have what is essentially a cap and trade system, Washington State, that's going to create a boatload of money. My guess is that most people are thinking that we're going to pay that money out kind of in big chunks to people to do cool stuff. What if instead we paid it out for metered performance that told you how much carbon you were getting back? And there was a 20-year contract to deliver carbon benefits. Uh, so instead of mooshing that into this model, you're just talking about basically an analogous model. Yep. So, you know, instead of efficiency energy, you would be hiring a developer basically to come into your building and, and create negative emissions. What would you call, what would you call them? Avoided emissions? Metered? Metered avoided emissions? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's, it's actually pretty straightforward if what you're looking at is the energy system, right? Because if you're, you know what the CO2 is of a therm of gas and that went to zero, right? So you, that number is just going to keep happening. And then the question is, what, if anything, do you have to subtract from that number because you added electricity to the system, mm -hmm. right? And that's not hard math and you're metering it already, 
right? You're already, it's the same meter reading. It's just a question of, you know, how many tons of carbon dance on the head of a kilowatt hour. So can we imagine then an energy tenant that's in a building selling efficiency energy to the utility and then via a separate contract selling avoided emissions? Yes. Yes. Two separate contracts with the utility, basically. Well, yeah, or you could do the separate contract with the state, right? I mean, there's, you mm. know, they could just, it's just a cash flow, right? And this is the thing that's really important. What I'm really talking about here is it's going to take a huge amount of capital to fix all the buildings we need to fix. And that's going to take not ratepayer money because we don't have enough ratepayer incentive dollars to throw at that, right? You need private sector capital to, to make that happen. And all a good friend of mine in Portland, a guy named Bill Campbell, likes to say that investors want a black box with a cash flow coming out of it, <laughs> right? And what I'm talking about is a black box with three cash flows coming out of it. You've got the meets contract, which may or may not include the second element, which is the demand response and all of that. You could run that separately if you wanted, and the carbon benefits. All three of those, in my view, as the father of an 11-year-old, we should be paying for the performance of that. We should only pay for the performance. Right. If it doesn't perform, you don't get paid right? We should pay for it over 20 years, just like we did for all the wind and early solar contracts. And you've got three cash flows coming out of that. The amount of capital you can then throw at a building is immense. Mm -hmm. But that's, to be clear, only possible in a state or jurisdiction that is somehow pricing carbon emissions. Well, right? that's right. You get and, to have so that you, cash flow. Right. You might only have two of those. Or, you know, in Seattle right now, there's no market for grid services. Hmm. Right. And there's no market for the carbon at the moment. But so all we had was the building owner benefit being recirculated to the energy tenant. That's all we had. Of those three cash flows, we had one. And we're still getting 30% to 40% reductions in these buildings. Why, why is there no energy or, or grid services market? Just because Seattle City Light hasn't set one up? Or? Yeah, well, it hasn't really developed in Washington because it's a hydro-based system and there's just a lot mm. of capacity in the system. So, you know, it's not like California where you've got all these constraints and you know, you got a huge duck curve and all of that, right? So right in the California, where, where they have you know these big, big advanced problems with with variable renewable energy and the duck curve and all that, you can imagine a quite robust uh, market for flexibility services. Well, basically. that's right. In fact, those, that market's already going on, right? You, I read about it on LinkedIn almost every day. <laughs> so you just got to tap buildings into that too. Well, that's right. I mean, there's no reason why the developers, the energy tenants, couldn't provide those services into the system in the same way they do now and potentially even use the same approach that's used in California to do that. Yeah, so the the over the, the theme here then is taking uh, these demand side benefits and just creating a model that treats them the same way we treat supply yep. uh, of energy, basically funds them the same way. We get long-term contracts, we get uh, uh, happy investors, and happy building owners. So what's, what does a world look like then where this is like, if you, you know, I keep thinking of like the computer simulations where they release the one creature that, you know, eats one other creature every two minutes and uh -huh. then they let it evolve. Like right. what happens when you release meats into the, uh, the building sector nationwide and it grows and flourishes? Like what? Yeah. Well, I think what, what happens is that they make it, the buildings make a major contribution to a stable atmosphere and a stable grid, which is what we're trying to do. 
That's the point, right? That that it feeds on itself, right? There's nothing like success to breed success. And I was in I was in Hawaii several years ago, back when I could go to Hawaii, and I was talking to an energy guy there who I really liked, and and he was trying to get his head around meats, and he said, "So you mean every one of these buildings has an energy nanny?" <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to steal that. Right. And I didn't say, cause this was before you did your podcast. I didn't say if I ever get invited on that podcast, I'm going to use that. Right. But it's a great, it, it, like, think about that. Right. Right. And so every single large building has a party that is financially incentivized to maximize its energy performance, basically. Right. Exactly. The buildings become grid assets rather than grid liabilities. And that's, you know, there's a lot of buildings and that's a lot of, <laughs> that's a lot of energy. It's a lot of efficiencies, a lot of potential storage, it's a lot of potential self-generation. You know, people talk about the need for storage and balancing in a sort of, you know, high renewables grid. That's a big battery. Like the yeah. nation's commercial building stock is a very large battery. It is. And people don't people don't think about it that way. But just think about all the malls along the whatever highways yes. near your house, right? Right now, in most places, all of their HVAC systems are on whenever they feel like it. <laughs> if you just said, you know, you guys get the first 10 minutes of the hour and you guys get the next 10 minutes of the hour and you, you, you would right. substantially, or we'll turn you on when, you know, when the wind is blowing, and we'll turn you off for 20 minutes when it's not. No one in the mall is going to notice, right? These All these buildings are huge thermal batteries, and we don't treat them like that. And we could. We could. Yeah. Just as sort of EVs will make the entire transportation fleet a distributed battery, this you can imagine this making the entire commercial building fleet a distributed battery. Right. And it's not like we need to invent new gear to do this. The gear exists. The problem is it doesn't have a transaction structure that allows its value to be experienced. Right. Well, this is all awesome. I love <laughs> I love an innovation that just like looks at the pieces on the table and like just like how do we rearrange these pieces so they make something coherent, you know, like not inventing anything particularly new, not you know, this is nothing exotic. It's just let's organize ourselves in a more rational way could make such a huge difference. That's right. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on and walking through this. Uh, it, it's super cool. And maybe in a few years in a, uh, I, I almost said post pandemic curse, my, <laughs> curse, my, <laughs> curse, my tongue at a, a lesser pandemic world. We'll talk in a few years and we'll see what's happening. Uh, we'll see what's happening with the model. Great. Thank you so much, David. All right. Thanks a lot, Rob. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.